0: Welcome to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning-making. I'm your host, Paul Ann and whether you're listening via podcast or watching online, I hope that together we'll be able to explore the intersection of theology with all of our other meaning-making endeavors, whether that's the intersection of theology with science or with the arts, like film and music or whether it's in the intersection of theology and philosophy. Hey everybody, I want to welcome you to the first episode of Deep Talks, Exploring Meaning in Theology. In today's podcast, I want to talk about the phenomenon that is Dr. Jordan Peterson. And there's so many things you can talk about in regards to Dr. Peterson. Last night I was uh, invited to uh, go to a lecture that he was presenting here in Minneapolis, at the state theater uh, to a sold out crowd and actually tickets had sold out within the first I think the first few minutes of them being released which is quite the phenomenon in and of itself to have a large or at least a good sized venue sold out filled with people that aren't coming to a concert or to hear a stand-up comedian but are actually hearing I've come and paid really good money to hear someone give a talk about uh, philosophy and psychology and even theology. And though Dr. Peterson is certainly not a theologian, his talks are filled with theological implications and theological presuppositions. And I wanted to take some time in this first podcast to explore the theology of Jordan Peterson, at least so far as he presents it publicly. In doing so, I'm going to look at what are some of the strengths in the Christian tradition, uh, what would be perceived as strengths, and what might be uh, what I might consider to be weaknesses in the theology that's presented. And I'm doing this not as like a wholesale endorsement or some sort of a attempt at like public rebuke or to make you pick a side as to whether or not you're pro Jordan Peterson or anti Jordan Peterson. That stuff is so trivial and tribalistic. And what I actually hope to have happen in this podcast, both in today's episode and in future episodes, is to model The sort of mature, nuanced dialogue that complicated issues in theology and in meaning-making deserve. And in doing so, I hope to present what I consider to be a fair analysis of the theology of Dr. Jordan Peterson. We're going to take today's episode to talk about what I perceive to be the strengths of Jordan Peterson's theology so, uh, I hope you enjoy. Stay tuned. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh what I perceive to be some of the theological strengths of uh Jordan Peterson's message or messages and again, this is coming really fresh off of uh his talk last night um, which in many ways is is typical of most talks that you hear dr peterson give it's not linear in fact even though this is advertised as a book tour i'm pretty certain that he only uh of his 12 rules or 12 steps for life i think it's 12 rules for life of his 12 rules for life i think he literally i think he mentioned only two of them in the two hour um uh, monologue that he had the lecture that he had last night so um so, you know, this is this is stuff that I, I'm really grabbing from last night, but also from um, many other times I've, I've listened uh, to lectures and read materials from him. So I think one of the first strengths I want to highlight uh, that you hear in Jordan Peterson's talks is his affirmation of the inherent meaningfulness of existence. And in particular, uh, the possibility of living an immensely meaningful life, doing simple mundane things and honestly this this point can't be undersold for how attractive it is in 2018 where so much of what like philosophical materialism and naturalism has done and and if you don 't know what that terminology means like uh, philosophical metaphysical materialism or or naturalism is the view that all that exists in the universe is matter so there's no god there's there's no spirit um, you know the universe is all that's there or the multiverse matter is all that's there and one of the consequences of of that worldview and it's become really really popular over the last um, you know, a couple hundred years in particular, but it seems to be really gaining steam in the Western world of the United States uh, through, you know, the, the popularity of the kind of the, the new atheists as I don't know if they call themselves that or if that's just a label others have given them Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett. Sam Harris in particular, but in this, in this worldview, um, matter is all that exists and the universe is a closed system, uh, that follows a process of cause and effect. And so, uh, you know, one of the side effects of, of holding to this worldview is if the universe is, is a closed system or if you want to extend it to the multiverse, the multiverse is also then in and of itself a, a closed system, I suppose. It's a system of cause and effect. What's happening now is the result of a previous cause. Uh, you know, and and what happens is the dominoes fall as the the Big Bang gives way. And just to be clear, I'm not against like the Big Bang. In fact, you know it was a Catholic priest that laid out um, the, the 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 theory, the, the sex- successful, successfully described the initial moments that brought about. Uh, you know, our, our physical universe, not against that. But what I'm saying here is in this closed system of cause and effect, the, the, the big bang acts as like the first domino that starts knocking down a series of subsequent dominoes all the way leading up to this very moment. And the moment you clicked on your mouse to watch this video and the moment right now that I'm recording, this is because of a previous cause. And we can trace those causes all the way back to the big bang. And all we are doing is simply reacting to the previous cause, and uh, the problem with that that worldview it doesn't this just because this is a problem doesn't make it wrong. The problem with that worldview is that it's inherently deterministic or fatalistic. So if this is nothing more, if the universe is nothing more than a series of cause and effects. And there is no moral agency. Uh, there's no God. And I, uh, and we can talk about the different definitions for God in a later time. There's no revelation. There's no acting of the God in within the universe. Uh, and the universe truly is closed. Then there is no free will. And there's actually, as a result of that, not just there's no free will. Um, there's no possibility to say whether or not anything is true or false. Because our perceptions of reality are faded to us. So we can't say whether or not our observations about reality are true or false. And so there's some serious problems. And one of those problems is that uh, even if you believe that that's true... What that leads to is the subsequent feeling of nihilism and and nihilism is the the belief or the view or sometimes it's just like a feeling more than it is a coherent sort of like worldview or ideology is that. There is no meaning to existence. Existence is meaningless. It's a random series of cause and effect. And you know the the Darwinian perspective on evolution. And again, let me put a little asterisk. I am I am not. uh, This is not to say make a case against. evolution and you know to get into uh uh, this will be a a video blog for another time would be about um you know evolutionary creationism and you know the young earth older perspectives in uh, among christians in particular evangelicals so i'm not going to get off on that tangent but what i would say is the the um, darwinian perspective within this lens of of naturalism of uh of Metaphysical materialism um, makes even humans, though we're kind of on top of the food chain, it totally negates the Christian, the Jewish, and even Islamic tradition that affirms the inherent worth and dignity of individuals who are created in the image of God. And so that's going to get to another point, another strength of Dr. Peterson's, I believe, um, or at least of his message. But by simply uh, going and presenting, having an academic who um, just by having a sheer title of doctor next to his name, teaching at the University of Toronto and and having really this kind of like quaint Canadian accent, which, you know, all Americans are enthralled by accents. I I don't know why I instantly think anybody that has an accent sounds smarter uh, if it's coming from outside the the United States. Uh, He presents and forcefully argues and tells people that their life is meaningful. And people really want to believe that their life is meaningful. And so to have somebody tell them your life is meaningful and not just you know your life is meaningful if you uh, you find the cure for cancer, or you become you know the 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 next president of the United Nations or something. That your life is meaningful in doing mundane tasks like cleaning your room, getting a job, or oftentimes he puts it in kind of apophatic terms, and that's that's a maybe a theological term that if you're not familiar with it comes especially like in the eastern orthodox tradition there's this emphasis on um describing god in terms of what god is not so apophatic or negative theology anyways uh, he often apophatically you know gives people a directive uh guidance and and, and purpose for their life to just be like don't make life more hellish than it needs to be that was one of the uh, points he spent quite a bit of time on last night is that you know life is already filled and this is just uh, seems to be an obvious uh, obvious observation from just living is that life is actually it is full of misery and suffering and so at least if and if not anything else you you can do through really simple mundane things contribute to not making it more miserable now that in and of itself might not be sufficient grounds for saying that existence is, is meaningful. In fact, all that might just be is to invite people to uh, to try to do what comes naturally to us, and that's to avoid suffering. But to, to affirm the meaningfulness, the inherent meaningfulness of, of life, and to affirm in the particular day-to-day mundane tasks like cleaning your room, filling out a job, uh, you know, a job application if you're looking for work, um, raising your kids, uh, that those things are meaningful is actually something uh, that I don't know if evangelical churches, and again, my theological perspective, I've spent all my life in, um, in evangelical settings. So if that's a, if that's a turn off for you, please don't turn this off. Please still keep listening. Um, but um in oftentimes in those settings, I've heard messages about and they're well intended, and I've even in the past have given these rah-rah uh sorts of sermons where you know we, we are called, and in essence, the burden is on you. To save the world. And. um, In particular. In my early 20s. There was a really a a growing. Popularity. Um, I mean you you saw it embodied in. um, You know I could even go back to high school. But you saw it even in, in. In culture. These expressions for the. Kind of disdain for normal life. I think of movies. Like Fight Club. Um. As one example, or or even in, in The Matrix where um, Neo is, just works like an office job and yet he's yearning for more. I mean, it was the same thing for um, the lead character in, in Fight Club. He works in an office job and now he's like feeling like his life has no meaning or purpose. And for, um, you know, in in my younger years, there was this really um, the church in particular was grabbing on. They were doing, I think, in many ways, a, a good job of feeling the cultural pulse that young people felt this built in nihilism to like the American dream to getting a job, to sitting in a cubicle, to doing work that you don't see as being meaningful, and you do that for the rest of your life, and then you you die. And it's it comes comes across as quite morbid and, and pretty depressing. And that that's not just in the church, but that was quite the cultural phenomenon which has kind of given rise to what uh, many people consider just to be like the millennial attitude. Right. And the millennial attitude is very different than the boomers attitude in many ways. But in one way is that they want to do work that's meaningful, but yet like meaningful seems to be attached to doing something revolutionary. there's some like, I think, uh, identity issues in that for for many people. And I am a, a millennial. I fall into that that bracket. But here comes a guy in Jordan Peterson. That says uh, life is meaningful, which for many people who have not been given a framework. And I'm talking about people, you know, maybe outside of the Christian tradition and even within the Christian tradition, not there's oftentimes people don't do a great job of articulating why uh, life is inherently meaningful. But especially outside of it, you don't have a a framework, a, a narrative um a foundational narrative that gives your life meaning and purpose and you look around the world and it's like man there is as Jordan as Jordan Peterson talks about there's a lot of suffering in the world and there's a lot of things that don't make sense and actually part of the Christian tradition is an affirmation of that i mean just read ecclesiastes for example uh, which you probably i don't when was the last time you heard a a sermon series in church on ecclesiastes but this um this is this sense of like what's my meaning and purpose you look around there's 7 billion people you're on this rock you know third rock from from the sun in one solar system in a galaxy that's among billions and billions of or just countless galaxies and you analyze that data and you go boy what's Does my individual life matter? So uh, the Christian response to that question has been, yes, theologically, your life has meaning and value. And there's several ways that theologically Christians have derived that answer, right? First of all, is that you're made. All humanity, every human being is made in the image of God. And that's, that's another point that, you know, I think Dr. Peterson emphasizes fairly regularly. I'll come back to that one. You know, there, another reason historically in the Christian tradition that your life has meaning and value that that's, that's given to you is yes, you're an image bearer and that, uh, that Christ died for you, that he died for humanity. And um, if God, you know, uh, to use the words of uh, Jürgen Moltmann, the the, if the crucified God, if God was crucified for you, then that is a statement of your worth as well. And then I, I also, I, I do sh I do come from a bit of a charismatic Pentecostal tradition too. And you know, another. Another affirmation of the inherent meaningfulness of life that is really emphasized in the Pentecostal and charismatic tradition is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh and all people, the accessibility of the spirit of God to all. So not only are you made in the image of God, not only did God see your worth as to somehow like in a substitutionary way, uh, die, and that's a statement of your value. But after the resurrection, this Holy Spirit is poured out. And yes, it's poured out on particular people. But they announce that this is the fulfillment that, um, uh, you know, for, for the fulfillment of what the, the prophets prophesied long ago. That sons and daughters would prophesy young and old would have visions and dreams. It's accessible to everybody. So um, these are affirmations like theologically that, boy, there's something in that that says my life has value. And then also in the Christian tradition, there's then been like you have this inherent value as an image bearer whom Christ died for whom the spirit you have access to. And it can actually and does in Christ live in you. Not only that. But now you can actually participate in a vocation, too, uh, to work in the world that is a participant somehow in, in something God is doing in, in a synergistic way. You get to participate in God's renewing of creation, which actually, like, again, in the Christian tradition is a reclamation of our original vocation uh that, that's, that's told right in the Genesis narrative which you know Jordan Jordan Peterson has given many talks on as well and actually has made a, a crap load of money on that people have you know he makes like I think $750,000 a year just from Patreon supporters um so um no Patreon plug here today from for me I don't have one set up <laughs> but um Yeah, so the Genesis, the job description, right, given to Adam, Adam, who, again, in Hebrew, it literally means man. So I know we think of it as a name, but man and the first woman is caretakers and uh, caretakers of creation. And so we get to have meaning and value also in our vocation. And again, this vocation to participate in God's renewing work is not, uh, is not, is not conditional on whether or not you do something that on paper is a significant work or not. You know, Paul gives instructions. The apostle Paul gives instructions in the new Testament. To like, just to live, make it your business to live a, a quiet, peaceable life. That's also good enough, right? All right. So let's talk about the second, uh, a second strength here, theological strength, and that is. Um, it's Dr. Peterson's re- rejection of metaphysical naturalism or metaphysical materialism as being insufficient to explain uh, reality. It's obvious that uh, from from the Christian tradition theologically speaking, it's impossible to believe that the world is reducible to simply matter and nothing more while simultaneously holding to the existence of uh of God and and not again oh gosh if i hear another another um like new atheist disciple talk about God as oh you you like you worship the old man with the beard the sky god no um you know read some go read some thomas aquinas where we're talking about god as in the prime reality as in the the necess the necessary by which all contingencies derive their being from the being by which beings derive their being from the unmoved mover and i'm not uh, certainly there's been deists over the years that have made that unmoved mover impersonal and just a clockmaker etc cetera, etc cetera. But um, all this is to say is that uh, I think it goes without much explanation that uh, to make a statement against uh, philosophical or uh, philosophical metaphysical naturalism as being um, all a sufficient way of explaining what reality is made of is is not in keeping with the Christian theological tradition. So let's talk about the next uh, next strength I want to affirm, and that's uh, that's that's Jordan Peterson's affirmation of each individual as a divine image bearer. I've I've, I've touched on this earlier in in, in bringing up the, the the first strength about the inherent meaningfulness of existence. But uh, Dr. Peterson is right that the affirmation of the individual as having inherent meaning, having inherent value, that that value is derived from God, not from the state, not from the collective group, is a uniquely biblical idea. And he, you know, he's a massive fan of, of Nietzsche, and I am as well. And by fan, I mean, you know, and that's certainly not in agreement with, with the totality of Nietzsche's philosophy. But if if you're going to read one atheist, I, I wouldn't read, you know, it wouldn't be Dawkins or any of the new guys. It, it would be Nietzsche. Nietzsche rightly observed that the, the notion of the, the value of the poorest of the poor or the notion of the inherent value for someone who is, um, you know, physically disabled and, and why we wouldn't just eliminate those kinds of people and the sort of eugenics like fashion that happened in the early 20th century and nazism and you know and even in some of the eugenics movements in the united states that the the, the reason why western civilization hasn't done that and yet has inconsistently not seen all individuals as divine image bearers we I'm can to talk about that later is because of this notion that the individual has infinite Inherent worth, and they derive that from God. I think Dr. Peterson is completely correct in his assessment that if that notion changes, if individuals do not have inherent value. Which again, you'd have to ask, where does the value come from? If you don't believe in God, you don't believe in some transcendent source of ethics or where does that individual's value come from? And what you'd get left with is maybe something like, well, it, it just would be a miserable, a utilitarian. So another term from, from, from ethics is you're left with like a utilitarian ethic or a teleological ethic, which all that is is fancy terminology to say that ethics are d- derived from their usefulness, or you might have pragmatic reasons for why you might say, well, we want to value the individual because, and, you know, and there's some libertarians out there that they aren't, um, and people that were, you know, in the Enlightenment, for example, classical liberals that, that weren't, Christians that said, well, you know, I think natural law, na- you know, natural law dictates that uh, we if we don't have reason dictates if we don't have the individual as valuable, then um, then like what's to stop us from just going around and killing each other and taking each other's property, et cetera, et cetera. But again, I, I think without. The theological affirmation that the individual derives their worth from God and there's a spark, not just a spark in some sort of Gnostic sense, there is an imprint of the divine that we are actually deriving our being from being itself and then there is disastrous consequences that that follow when we lose sight of that and subsequently, and I, don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this because actually I'll address it in my the, the weaknesses that I perceive, theological weaknesses I perceive from Dr. Peterson's um, uh, talks and in, in, in worldview, is that uh, in Western civilization, there has certainly been um, a lack of consistency in the application of, of who is a divine image bearer you know and this is you don't have to go too deep into american history to, to realize this was a problem right you know whether we see the inconsistency in thomas jefferson's declaration of independence that all men are created equal they're endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights and he wasn't making this idea up it's been something especially in the enlightenment that um had become a popular notion, but that he himself he himself held as property individual image bearers there's a disconnect there all that being said this is the purpose of this podcast isn't necessarily to go through history uh and and to talk about you know and you know inconsistencies and in individuals theologies as they live them out in history past though maybe we might devote some time another podcast to that um the, the purpose of this after affirming this point is to say that when you know when jordan peterson steps into a public sphere and he tells people in that con- i say I'm, i almost slipped there i like a, a Freudian slip or something. Uh, it was called it a congregation, and that's really what it feels like. You have a preacher preaching to a congregation. You even joked last night. There was a guy kind of came out during intermission uh, between his, you know, Peterson's uh main talk and him just answering some questions. And that guy came out and kind of kept the crowd engaged. And you know, we were kind of joking with my friends and I. Uh, who were there with me? That it felt like the guy was about to take an offering or something because it, it really and it, it was it was like a church uh, sort of experience for many people. It was a religious experience, but that being said, I would want to celebrate anybody that goes in to a public space where there are people of all sorts of divergent viewpoints, religious perspectives, non-religious perspectives. And tells people in the room, you have value, and that value is because there is the mark of the divine in you. And I think that's worth celebrating. So another strength, uh, another strength I wanna I wanna highlight theological strength is that uh, I perceive that you know um, Jordan Peterson I from my vantage point uh, seems to take quite seriously the inherit and the inherit and inherited sinfulness of human beings and the capacity of individuals to bring about terrible uh, malevolence and evil in the world. Malevolence is a term he uses uh, frequently. And uh, I, I do think he takes that seriously. And in doing so he's, he is saying something theologically true again in the Christian tradition and it's this this odd this odd conundrum right that human beings are made in the image of God and yet simultaneously and there's many ways throughout the history of of the church and all the different denominations and traditions that that people have tried to say this thing and, and some of them don't do I think is good of job as others but there's been this affirmation that yes while made in the image of god there's something twisted a seed uh, within um uh, an original sin a depravity a sin sickness that is also present in human beings and they are very much capable of and the uncorrected trajectory of their life is sinfulness and sinfulness that leads to death so if i were to refer you to you know outside of the scriptures a, a theological resource to go to on this subject and you know i frequently like to revisit it during advent it's um it's athanasius's uh on the incarnation. So go find that online somewhere, read it. I think he does a great job of describing the problem of human sinfulness in a way that Augustine I don't think got totally right. And Augustine even you know, he 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 probably took the the idea of this kind of inherited sinfulness this predisposition towards selfishness. Which I think is actually only affirmed in evolutionary psychology, which, you know, Jordan Peterson uses regularly to talk about. There's something in our, our past that gets passed down to us that we are born into the world with this predisposition to um, act selfishly. And um, again, we'll use, you know, Jordan Peterson's sort of terminology to, to climb to the top of dominance hierarchy is using treachery, deceit, using, you know, tactics of dominance that this is this is within us it's like nobody has to teach you that um and this has been something in the christian tradition that's been affirmed you know i think the difference between someone like athanasius and augustine is that augustine you know started getting into like the mechanics of how sinfulness is passed down and he actually thought it was in uh you know earmuffs for if you're for some reason like under 11 watching this um you know that it was passed down through the sperm actually in the act of sexual intercourse and that's why you know uh, the sex that didn't have procreative intentions is sinful even in for like augustine even in the bounds of marriage um, uh, and that's why again, like, you know, this led into a whole theology of the virgin birth and why the virgin birth had to be a virgin birth for Christ so that the seed of sinfulness didn't get passed down through, you know, so there's a bunch of stuff out there. I, I think Athanasius does maybe a better job of of not trying to like describe some sort of mechanical process for how we inherit this thing, but he talks about Um, The trajectory of sinful rebellion leading to what you could maybe say is the natural outcome of death in the world. And so um, Christ enters into that trajectory, taking on the sinfulness, uh, taking on flesh. And in doing so, he also steps into our trajectory of death, and in a way, this isn't his word at all it's mine. like he intercepts our this course for humanity and takes on death and then defeats death in his resurrection. Um, but sinfulness is a problem, and uh, I think Dr. Peterson takes that quite seriously. And recognizes that humans also contain within them this propensity to do horrific evil um, on a large scale, whether that's Auschwitz or whether it's on a small scale, like you know, uh, um, you know, adultery, which isn't small. You you understand what I mean? But I mean like on a on a, a global Using, you know, global perspective. So I think this is another another important and true theological affirmation. So the next, uh, the next theological strength that I see presented in Jordan Peterson's material is that though. Um, and this is a strength and simultaneously a weakness that I'll talk about at another, another point. But uh, though he does not explain the why in an explicit way, uh, Jordan Peterson attempts to affirm that there is a necessary transcendent source of ethics or what uh, ethicists uh, might like to call ethics from above. Uh, this ethical source from above is the the source of principled ethical norms, like telling the truth. Uh, you know, if you've listened to, you know, there's just so much material out there on YouTube, but even if I'm sure, I I guess I haven't done this, um, but I'm sure that if you just typed into YouTube, Jordan Peterson telling the truth, you know, a a thousand different videos are going to show up and. In those, uh, Jordan Peterson affirms a principled commitment to telling the truth and its necessity. Um, And this principle is he encourages people to follow truth telling even when it seems like the outcome of your truth telling is going to cost you something. And in a way, though I wouldn't say he is affirming the reward of truth-telling for uh, coming in eschatological rewards. That means rewards in the end of the age or in the resurrection, renewal of all things in in Christ. That that's a Christian notion. But he does affirm in some way that 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 truth-telling will ultimately lead because it's principally the right thing to do it will lead at some point even if that's not immediate to something positive happening in the world it will lead to good continued good in the world so uh you know dr peterson even mentioned uh, talked about a little bit last night some of the interactions debates he's had with sam harris uh, Sam Harris's project uh, is to um, attempt from a from an atheist perspective, in particular like a, a metaphysical naturalist to try to uh, show that ethical norms uh, can be derived from scientific data and um, and in, that you don't need a belief in God. in fact from his perspective, beliefs in God are hindrances to establishing sound ethical norms for society and uh, you know uh, Jordan Peterson is in obvious disagreement about this and so uh, while I think and I do have some question that might I think I will bring up probably in my my weaknesses section is um, I do have some questions as to whether or not uh, Jordan Peterson's a sense of ethical oughtness is actually derived from a belief in a transcendent source of ethics or whether or not it's just a different variation of deriving ethical norms from what you could say in ethical terms is from below from culture and in particular maybe from evolutionary processes Um, I do think uh, in the end, I think my conclusion is, though, he uses uses, he likes to, again, hide his his beliefs uh, that uh, there's there's no way to make sense of his ethical direction and the principled nature of things like you should always tell the truth uh, without seeing that he has some sort of uh, belief in a transcendent source. Of ethics. All right, so one last strength I want to talk about, though I could probably go on with many more strengths, is that uh, yeah, theologically, um, I perceive there to be, and and there's maybe been times where he's admitted this. Uh, I, I know I've heard I've heard him at least in a few talks, though he doesn't reference Kierkegaard as much as Nietzsche uh that you know there is some kierkegaardian influence on jordan peterson that i think in keeping with a sort of kierkegaard like perspective an existentialist perspective i think one of the th- another theological strength is that uh, jordan peterson consistently reiterates that what one belie what one believes is best discerned by the way one actually lives and not merely by what they say they believe. And this was a oh boy this was like that's Kierkegaard 101, right? And in um in in his day in eight, you know 18th century Denmark as he was kind of combating a sort of theological nihilism and the you know the the, the all too cozy relationship that he perceived between Christendom, Christianity, and the state, and the you know just sort of a cultural, religious, uh, cultural, uh, you know, uh, uh, Christianity that uh, he what he saw within there were were people who claimed to be following this Jesus, but whose lives bared act no actual resemblance to Jesus. And this isn't just like a Kierkegaard idea. I think one of the things I appreciate so much about Kierkegaard is that Kierkegaard's existentialism, that what you believe is really exhibited in how you live your life is actually, I think, a New Testament message. It's, you know, what did John the Baptist say to the Pharisees? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This is also the message of Jesus, you know, good trees produce good fruit, bad trees produce bad fruit. James as well, Jesus's brother in the epistle of James, faith without works is dead. And there's kind of been a false uh, dichotomy, maybe, uh, you know, a false argument pitted against, you know, Pauline theology and... The theology of James or even sometimes people have pitted Pauline theology against Jesus's theology in the Sermon on the Mount, which I always find weird. Um, And part of this part of this is maybe um, there is some Reformation influence here. And yeah, I think you have to understand in the, the Protestant Reformation. The. Reaction. The reaction against, especially in the Lutheran tradition, the reaction against attaching someone's, you know, salvific identity, whether or not they were to be found in Christ or not, in their works for them, too closely resembled the Catholicism of their day and of their recent history, which had the pendulum had swung too far in the other direction and had had moved into um, this again, this works righteousness that doesn't see works as an overflow of a of of a union with Christ, and to use like that's 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 terminology that's very Pauline, right? It's from the Apostle Paul in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, um, and, and it's also language through Irenaeus. You know, Athanasius, I mean, that's part of the incarnation is that we, you know, the incarnation is what it is and is necessary because God becomes a man so that humans can have the ability to participate now. In the divine, and so it's in Christ, in Christ, the Eastern Orthodox tradition. This is the heavy emphasis of the, they call theosis, right? The process of when we become in Christ, of growing in, you know, Wesleyans and others in the Protestant tradition might call it sanctification, but they call it theosis. That um, the overflow of that is demonstrated in fruits in actions. And so, you know, I think the Lutheran tradition, Luther, Luther's concern was that he felt that he couldn't work up enough works and he was right that he couldn't. And, you know, this would be one of my, and maybe this is a bit of a transition, you know, one of my cautions with Dr. Peterson's message is that there is, and there is some truth to just like, guys, get up in the morning make your bed. Now I'll be honest. I hate making my bed. It's just a side ta- tangent. I've always hated it. I'll, I'll, I'll do it to, you know, sometimes I'll do it to be a good, good husband. that my wife might challenge me on, on that point, but it was always like, yeah, I'm, no one's going to see my bed most of the time. And then in a few hours, well, a few hours, like 12 hours later or whatever, 14 hours later, I'm going to hop right back into the same bed. So why make it anyways? But Jordan Peterson's mantra of, you know, just make your bed, do something, act in the world, do what's right. There is a lot that seems like it can be done to change one's state of affairs by simply doing what's in their power to do I don't think that's the Christian message though I think the Christian message and in the Christian message is also I also don't think it's on the other extreme of us of the total depravity that we see in um, you know for example um, you know Calvin maybe too strongly emphasized the depravity of the individual to the point where, uh, and maybe even this is not so much Calvin's fault as maybe subsequent generations of people, some, some that have read his, his theology and derived something that you were actually like unable to do anything right in the world because you're so dead in your sins, uh, that like, this is crazy to some people, but I, I've had to talk with young people about um, that wrestled with in their own faith and tradition. They, they felt like like newborn babies entering into the world. They entered into a world in a position where a newborn baby, God looked at that newborn baby and actively hated that newborn baby. Because that newborn baby was born with total depravity, with that original sin, and the only way God starts liking people is when they put on Christ. Right? Who is it? Um, I you know I'm not I, I don't remember who who said this. Um. Yeah, but it's like you know they say that uh, this, uh, this theologian talked about how you know when someone enters into Christ they put on Christ and Christ is like the asbestos suit that keeps them from the flaming hot wrath of of God and you know God just hates everybody except for those that are in Christ there's been that extreme and so That's, I think that's a problem. Um, On the other side, there is a danger to thinking that the operating system of our heart can be changed. By our own operating system, and what I mean by that, if you consider your your heart—not literally the muscle, but in a biblical sense, the 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 thing that that makes you who you are, which is a complex set of factors—if that thing can get changed by it attempting to change itself, uh, that is, I think. N- outside now it's now outside of the christian tradition and the and sound theology in order for the transformation of the self to occur something outside of the self needs to act upon it and you know maybe i'll use some language from the eastern orthodox tradition that in order for the sickness of of sin to be dealt with the healer actually needs to enter in and deal and heal the sickness otherwise there will be simply um symptom management right and this is also i mean honestly this is very much also a reformed idea as well is that um you know there there uh, christian moralism is not what we want to be you know just moralistic message preached from the platform this is what you should do this is what you should do this is what you should do because the problem is if you don't have the inner resources to do that thing um you can cover up the symptoms of your inherited brokenness but eventually those symptoms you know you're taking Tylenol when you're bleeding out uh you take enough of it you might not feel it but you haven't actually addressed it you haven't got healed from it and so i think a part of what's missing, and he's not an evangelist. So, I, this, but again, I'm just trying to highlight that there are, there's some good theology here, and there's some things that I think, like theologically, we sh- we should reassess. That to simply make your bed every day doesn't deal with the sickness in you. At the same time, I'm thankful that Jordan Peterson is going out and affirming. There is something sick in you that produces malevolence in the world. I don't know. I don't know if he's got the medicine to deal with it. I think a lot of people have found some of the strategies helpful. And insofar as they are helpful, I would say this. And this is they're helpful in so far as they lead someone to participate in Christ and in the work of the Spirit. And salvation can come in so many ways. The only way is through Christ ontologically. That means Christ in reality. But the the ways in which someone can Becomes a participant in Christ. I think it's very, very, like, very American and, like capitalistic and I'm not an anti-capitalist by the way, but capitalistic to think that it's just an exchange of I sign off on this in the form of a sinner's prayer and I get something. And that's like the only way to do it is through some sort of contractual. Now there's, I think there's lots of ways that God's grace and again, salvation belongs to God. God's grace enters in and in this, some sort of synergistic cooperation where, you know, God's provenient grace which is accessible to all the will stops resisting the spirit's beck and call and starts participating in it. And what the results of that are from a Christian perspective are good works. Ephesians, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. What are some of those good works? It might look like organizing your room. It might look like not being a jerk and and trying to climb to the dominance hierarchy in your job. And in fact, it might look like you taking on mimicking Christ. And not in your own strength, but in cooperation with Christ's empowering spirit that lives within you to understand that uh the goal is to not climb to the top of the dominance hierarchy. Jesus in the Gospels has a interesting interaction with the sons of thunder right um, uh, who have come to him and they're asking, and then one gospel the it's the mother, but the point is the same that they are coming asking to sit. At, in a way, we'll use Jordan Peterson terminology, the sit at the the top of the dominance hierarchy in the kingdom of God at Jesus' right hand. And he goes, you guys don't even know what you're asking. And then he subsequently follows up that conversation by explaining the Jesus way. And the Jesus way is not the way of the Gentiles who lord it over who rule over, who climb to the dominance hierarchy. And as and as they climb, their goal is to rule over those underneath them. But your job, and this is, you know, I think Greg Boyd maybe coined this. I don't know if he's the first guy to use this terminology. But you, yours is, your job is to serve in a power under, a power under role to, as Christ who, you know, Philippians, uh, the Christ hymn in Philippians 2 so beautifully describes this. You know, Christ's humiliation, though, as God did not consider equality with God. Something, and I will paraphrase here, to 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 flaunt or to put to his own advantage. But took on the form of a slave, of a servant. He took on that. That doesn't happen. You know, and to actually successfully incorporate some of Dr. Peterson's own evolutionary psychological insights is that, yeah, there may be something hardwired into you that gives you this propensity to survive through selfish ambition. And that's maybe how you pass on your genetic code. That's maybe how you stay alive. And these base motivators and this these base motivators emerge so often even when we enter into conflict with people and our amygdala kicks in and it hijacks us and we get into fight or flight mode just because someone's criticized us or presented us with a, a way of thinking that challenges our identity and those systems kick in we can say that that's yeah that's part of the sinful nature that we inherited but yet there is a second adam in Christ, And we get into Christ through this, a, a transformation, an inner transformation, and the result of that inner transformation is good works. Now, this is, again, not to say that people can't wake up in the morning and go, I am morbidly obese and I listened to Jordan Peterson and now I'm going to start working out and that they are unable to do that what i'm talking about though is that the sickness that produces malevolence in the world from the christian perspective there can be symptom management but what is going to eat that cancer out of us is the touch of the healer and it's Christ who has entered into our sufferings, he's entered into humanity, and we in our humanity become participants in his divinity in Christ in the spirit, and what that does is it produces good works in the world so um I think you know that that's a good transition to lead into um what i I think I'm going to just tackle in the next. The next podcast will I'll tackle um, some of the weaknesses, the other weaknesses in the theology that's presented by Jordan Peterson. So uh, thanks for listening, guys. And uh, leave me a comment, leave some feedback. If this is beneficial, great. If it's not, I don't want to waste my time. <laughs> so I'd love to hear from you guys, have some dialogue about the stuff that's uh, heard in today's podcast. Today's, today's podcast so uh, thanks for listening